Good morning, everybody. Am I picking up on the mic? You got me? I was going to wait for that song to end, but you know what? That song lasts like for 20 minutes. And I do have a message today that might take 20 minutes, so we'll see. But, uh, but anyway, thanks for coming today. Hopefully uh, you're all awake. Uh, it's about lunchtime, isn't it? I keep thinking I'm getting hungry. And uh, so, but we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk today. Um, Tony, of course, be praying for Tony. He's still hurting. He walked by the house yesterday. I told him I was getting ready to take my two dogs, my huskies. Some of you guys know I got a couple huskies. And he was walking by the house with his little shih tzu. And, and uh, I almost, Kathy saw him walking by and he was, he was, you know, you could tell he was, he was hurting. He was hurting. And so I was getting ready to walk the dogs, take him out the front door. And I thought, no, nah, I better hold off on that. Because if them two huskies see that little shih tzu, they're going to want to go play. And he ain't going to be in a mood to play. So I, uh, I didn't make him run for his life. So anyway, any, anyway, anyway, be praying for him just that he keeps going down a road of recovery. I think things are going good. So um, just keep him in your prayers this week as he continues down that path. So uh, we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk today. And I kind of, I was going through trying to decide what I, what I wanted to preach on and kind of looking at some areas in my own life that, <clears throat> that I, I struggle with at times. And Habakkuk is a, a sort of a, one of the Old Testament kind of heroes to me in his handling of circumstances in a very volatile and challenging uh, place. And so we're going to be, in, primarily we're going to stay in the book of Habakkuk today. We're not going to go a lot of places. We'll jump around a little bit, but we're going to stay in that book. I told Tony that uh, I'm going to rip him off of the opportunity to uh, go through Habakkuk in, in his uh, study that he's going through, starting in Genesis and going through um, the book, you know, because I'm going to go through the book of Habakkuk today. So I'm jumping way ahead in time from Genesis, you know, where we're at right now in that. But uh, probably five years from now, we'll have all forgotten this by the time he gets to Habakkuk, and it'll all be good again. So not a problem. But Anyway, we'll be in Habakkuk today, just looking at, uh, looking at, at the man and, and how he sort of handled uh, a very volatile place to be in his life and a very volatile place to be in the life of the nation of Israel, really, of his people. And so let's pray, and we'll do a little history, and then we'll get into it. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these Old Testament prophets, Father, that you use in our time uh, especially this one today in the book of Habakkuk and uh, the burden that he had and and how it so applies, I think, to today and, and where we are in this transitioning time, Lord, in preparation for your coming as we see so many things um, in the world that just continue to um, divide and destroy and, and the violence is great and Good judgment is non-existent, and Father, I just pray that we would be um, maintain our vision, Father, because without it, it is it is surely easy for us to get sidetracked and separated from your purpose and your call in our life. And I pray that this would be an example today uh, in our lives as to what we need to do. There's so many things, Father, that we need to do to keep our vision and to make it clear that we not get distracted by the violence uh, and the darkness that exists in our world today. And Father, we just want to give you praise and glory in all things, for it's your name that I pray. Amen. So just to do a quick little history on Habakkuk, Habakkuk was probably written around 600 B.C., 603, 606 B.C., in that time frame when the Babylonian Empire is getting ready to step in 
uh, Habakkuk is going to say some things that, that he sees coming, that he's seeing what's going to happen to the nation, and he has a burden for that, and he's trying to understand what God is doing, why he's doing things the way he's doing it. Have you ever been there? God, why did you put me in this situation? What are you doing? It was, I know things are bad, but it, it wasn't as bad before, but it's getting worse. Why are you letting this happen? Starting to question and, and kind of trying to figure out what, what is God doing? And so he comes to God and Habakkuk, to Habakkuk, he, he takes his burden to the Lord and the Lord answers him. And there's a couple of key areas in the book itself that we're going to touch touch on, but I want to start off at the beginning because verse one, you see this this uh, in chapter one, verse one, it says uh, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. So he saw something that was burdensome to him, and a burden, in fact, that he was going to have to figure out how to handle. He had a burden, man, and, and a burden is different than like a concern, right? When you have a burden for something. Um, I heard somebody say once from the pulpit, be careful when you pray for a burden, because when you get a burden, it, it drives you. It, it doesn't stop. It's not something that, that quits. It's, a, it's a, a driving thing that you will either follow it and, and go after it. It's, you know, Nehemiah had a burden. We looked at that when I first moved here. We looked at the book of Nehemiah, and he had a burden, and it drove him to totally change his life and to go after what God desired him to do and accomplish what God wanted him to do. But those burdens require a lot of, it's a forsaking of, really, if you're going to fulfill the burden that God has with you, you come into Christ, you will make your burden light. But in doing that, you're surrendering yourself to be carried by him, right? You're, you're, that's, that's what makes the burden light, is that you surrender to God to allow him to take you and accomplish in you what you want to accomplish for that burden. And those things come to us in different ways through the Word of God and the circumstances and the church, and we, we have those burdens and, and we pursue them. That's what God's called us to do, and he's given him a burden. He's seen something that is concerning to him and has created this burden, this drive in him. In verse 2, he begins to ask questions about it, right? And so when you look at chapter 1, he asks, I think, six or seven different questions, different questions of the Lord. And just a quick breakdown in chapter 2, um, there are five answers that he really gives him in reference to the questions in chapter 1. And right in the middle there, he gives him some instruction as to what to do. And then the result of his obedience is found at the end of the, end of the, end of the book in chapter 3. Um, and so just a, a basic breakdown. But what you've got is you've got the Babylonian Empire through the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans was sort of a subculture, and you find the Chaldeans in the Bible going all the way back to Abraham. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, right? We saw that in, in the book of Genesis. And so you see this Chal Chaldean subculture all throughout the Bible, and they were a subculture that was later sort of, they were in the southern end of Iraq, which would, would be today, and they were sort of consumed into the Babylonian empire. When you see the Chaldeans and the Babylonians in the Bible, they're generally speaking about the same group or at least conjoined groups together. So when you see, the, for example, Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel was a Chaldean king in Babylon. So they, they intermingled, and this group of these Chaldeans has been around, well, at least since Abraham's time. They had divided at that point and were recognized as a specific people group. From a historical standpoint, they were very intelligent people, very artsy people, very scientific people. 
people that were very much, but also a very violent people. Uh, they, they were, they were uh, similar to what I would say the upper echelon of the world system would appear to be today. Very smart, very intelligent, very scientific. When you look at Daniel chapter 1, I went over that uh, last week in Daniel chapter 1 in the early morning class. Thank you, David, for teaching today so I didn't have to. You got double Daves today if you went to the early class. You got me and, and Dave Williams. So anyway, I appreciate you taking care of that this morning. But, uh, oh, there he is back there, so appreciate it, man. So anyway, um, they were a very intelligent people, very, and you see that in Daniel chapter 1 where he takes the children of the nation of Israel and he tries to assimilate them or mold them into their way of thinking. And, uh, and you see that system being part of the Babylonian system. It becomes part of that system. And in fact, we know the spiritual Babylonian system shows up again and is defined in the book of Revelation as the system of the Antichrist. You see it being coming into play with the nation of Israel, and you see that in this book. So from a doctrinal standpoint, Habakkuk really deals with the nation of Israel, right, that's now being overcome. They've been kicked out back in the book of Kings. God's is now doing something with them that's different. He is uh, putting them through some, some trials and some tribulation, which he'll do in the future. But this book foreshadows that. It's prophetic towards that time frame when the nation of Israel is really on the run. And we'll see a little bit about that at this point. And God says why he does that. He defines that to some degree in chapter chapter one of this book, um, because you're going to see what God's doing. And so it's prophetic. And in fact, we're going to see in chapter two that these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, uh, totally, totally take over uh, the nation in the end. And, and, and then God comes back for them, of course, and rescues them. And so he writes towards that in chapter two. But that's sort of the history set. And today it's very applicable, I think, in where we are in the sense of just the upper echelon of society, and you have these these nations, these kings, very intelligent, driving things via, you know, just out of Daniel chapter 1. It really matches, systems today match Daniel chapter 1 very well in the sense of what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish, which is to rule the world, right, under the Antichrist. That's what inevitably will happen. And so when you get to chapter 1, he starts off in verse 1. He says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see and he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou shalt not save. So he's living now of, of impending violence. He's seeing this coming, right? Imagine being on the, the border of a nation and seeing the armies begin to swell, and you are looking. In fact, if you jump over real quick to chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand upon my watch. So he is standing upon a watch, right? This is not just a spiritual watch. Back then, it was physical. Back then, they, they were under attack. They knew that it was coming. And so when this is going on, he, he goes through this, and he's pleading to God about the physical violence that is happening, the things that are happening both within the nation of Israel and the impending invasion, the, over, the overtaking of, if you will, that nation. He sees it coming. Um, and it'd be, you know, th that's where he's at. He is standing a watch. Uh, there's a spiritual application that we'll get to that. But at the same time, he has a time here and something that he's doing uh, for a very specific purpose. And what he's seeing coming 
is violence. And he's crying out to God, God, stop this, right? Stop this. And yet God is not responding the way that he thinks he should. He's crying out to the Lord saying, please don't let this happen. This is going to be violent. It's going to be destructive. Uh, why? And then in verse 3, he, he goes on and he continues and he says, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievances or grievance for spoiling and violence are before me and there are that raise up strife and contention. So that's what he's seeing. That's the world that he's living in. Sounds very familiar, right, to our world. We are in the midst of world violence now. It's, I mean, just turn on the news, right? Ukraine is at war with Russia. China's threatening to invade Taiwan. North Korea and South Korea on a trigger's edge. You have a world system right now in the midst of collapse, in the midst of massive violence. You have financial chaos in, in a lot of places going on, including us, right? We had a bank shut down. Did you see that yesterday? Big bank in Silicon Valley, or Thursday, shut down Friday. Uh, you see these financial things and these, these issues going on. What's going to happen? You know, where are we going to be five years from now? From the sense of just the world system. You see this chaos. If you, if you don't have blinders on and you just see what's going on, this is where we are. We're in the midst of violence. We're in the midst of spoiling. And we're in the midst of strife and contention. Nobody knows what to do except argue with one another. That's, that's what you've got in the world. It is one constant argument, right? Strife and contention. And then look at verse 4. Therefore, the law is slacked. The word of God is, is slow, slacked. It's, it's been deemed not important, right? It's slacked. It has been set aside. It's there, but it's not in our time what most people would consider a solid reference on resolving world crisis. That's, it's just not, that's not what's being used today, right? They, um, they're doing it via their own means. So look what's happened, because he looks at that, therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. So there's the environment. The word of God is no longer important to the world. The righteous is surrounded by the wicked, and the judgment that does go forth is based upon the wicked principles of the world, not the just principles of the Word of God. So you have a, a reversal of judgments going on where nobody's, everybody's panicked, everybody's afraid, everybody's scared. They're trying to figure out why God is doing what God's doing. Surely God would not do this. Sure, and he gets into that. Why are you doing this? You're doing all this stuff, right? Look, I know the nation of Israel is messed up, but it's not as bad as the Babylonians, right? It's not as bad as the Babylonians. Surely the church is a mess in places, but it's not as bad as whatever. What's taken over? You know, God, why are you taking us through this? You know? Um, and so he goes on and he begins to define. I will read a couple verses. Verse 5, he says, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. God's doing this. Raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They're going to they're gonna rob what is God's, and he's, he's allowing this. You see that? I will bring them up. 
They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the, the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth uh, to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall uh, sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the, as the sand and they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. This is a world Babylonian world takeover. That's what he's seeing. He's seeing this, and God's saying, hey, believe it or not, I'm going to bring up this army to do this. I mean, put yourself in that position, right? Well, I think in a lot of ways we're there, right? We know, biblically, the outcome of, of this world. We know that. We understand that. We understand that it doesn't get better. We understand that things don't get better. We understand that things get worse. We understand the closer that we come to the end times, the more chaotic things get. We, we've seen that. We understand that. So very similar visions. And God's doing that also for a purpose. He has a purpose in this. And this is what God's answer is going to be. So he asks him these questions down through the rest of the chapter. Okay, and then I'm going to skip of chapter two. I'm going to skip the first four verses because I'm going to come back and focus a lot on that that section. But you're going to see God now. He takes it to God in chapter one and he asks him these questions. And then God responds in chapter two and look at verse five. He says, yea, also, because he transgresseth, transgresseth by wine. He is a proud man, neither keepeth a proud, neither keepeth at home who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a, and a uh, taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long and to, uh, how long and to him that ladeth himself with, with thick clay. So there's a lot there, but for the sake of time and getting back to the point, he's going to give you five woes coming to this man that he's talking about in chapter 2. And that man is the Antichrist in, in, the, in the future, in the, in the tribulation period. This is He's speaking directly to what's going to happen at that point. You'll notice he's a proud man. You'll notice that he's trying to rob something that's not his. You'll notice if you go down to the second woe in verse 9, woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness in his house, that he may set his nest on high. Right? That's right out of Isaiah in Ezekiel, where, where the devil was not satisfied with what God made him to be, and he's elevated himself above, wanted to elevate himself above the throne of God and seat himself on high and become God, all right? So this is who we're dealing with, clearly, the, the third woe. In verse 12, woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establish a city by iniquity. Well, that's what he's going to do in Jerusalem. He's going to come in, and he's going he's to get violent with it right? He's going to do these things. He goes on in verse 15, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink that puttest thy bottle uh, to him and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look on their nakedness, that drunkenness of the wine of the Antichrist and the false doctrine of the Antichrist, which simply leaves people helpless is what he's dealing with there. Just that leaving you, giving you something to induce you to be able to take advantage of you 
and to see your shame and to take advantage of your nakedness. That's, that's where he's at. It's that, that deceptive, um, demonic uh, plan, just like he's done his, his, whole, his whole existence. Verse 19, woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, right? To the dumb stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is, a, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. So you see now this, this fifth woe has to do with them that have gotten into idolatry. Who you know, says the, the wood is, is speaking to me, you know? Um, I, did you see the paper last week on the, uh, the tarot card reading sample at the library? Did you guys, how many guys saw that? You have a tarot card reader come down and do a little th thing at the library this last week. They had set that up. And then I saw Kathy pointed out an article to me. Did you see the article yesterday, why it got canceled? It's beautiful. If you haven't seen it, so they invited this gal down from Kansas City to come down and do show children tarot card reading, right? How's this work? And, and I'm thinking, well, that's brilliant. So there is a city ordinance. This is beautiful. Unbeknownst to the library, there's a city ordinance in place that if you're going to be paid to do that, you have to get a permit to do that. It's like any other business. So once the tarot card reader heard that she wasn't going to get paid, she decided not to show up. That was all in the paper, wasn't it? I thought it was funny because the article said something like, beknownst or unbeknownst to her. They used that phrase or something like that, like whether she knew this or didn't know that, you know? It was, it was almost like the paper decided to make a play on the whole thing at the end of the day. But, but you know, that's, that's where we're at. I don't know why I got into that, but idolatry, right? Lifting up things that are not really talking. Well, they may be talking to you, but it's not them that's talking, right? It's that idolatry, that creating gods from what it is that, that you want to create gods from. And so... You see that in those, those, so there's God's response, right? Um, verse 20, it ends up in chapter 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And then in the third chapter, we'll get into this later because I want to point out a couple things. He hears what God says, and he turns it into a prayer and a song. The third chapter is a prayer and a song. Um, so I want to jump back to chapter 2. Now that you understand sort of the foundation of what we're dealing with and what's going on in his time and what he's seeing. First chapter, he cries out to God about all this stuff. Why are you doing this? Why are you not responding? What's, what's going on? And God says, well, I'm, this is why, right? I'm going to raise this nation up. This is what they're going to do. Uh, but it's not forever because I'm going to deal with that later. He deals with that in all these woes in chapter 2, verse 5 through 220, dealing with the Antichrist and their king in Babylon. But then he gets, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, after he's cried out, before God answers, I want to watch and look at what Habakkuk's attitude was. So first of all, he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will stand upon my watch. So he is doing, in the midst of this, what he knows to do. He's seeing it coming. He's got his watch. He has his responsibilities. Whatever he's got to do in, in that mission, in that, that overlook that he's watching uh, out in the city, he has a, a personal responsibility. And you'll notice that he says, I will stand upon my watch. 
He knows he has a personal responsibility in this. Just as we all have a personal responsibility in God's purpose in our lives and where we're at today, in the midst of the, the surrounding chaos, God has a purpose and a plan for you individually. And you have to figure out what that was. We did a class over here on Sunday mornings on uh, finding your vision a while back. What is kind of looking at that and looking at vision in general um, as to, hey, determine that. But, but the first thing is this. You got to have a watch, right? You got he's, he's standing his watch. He's not swaying. He's not running. He's crying out to God. I don't get this. I don't understand this. He's not so hung up in it that he's deserted his post. And that happens so many times to believers when we get so hung up on stuff and the fear or whatever it is that gets inside us and pretty soon you see guys just not, it's overwhelming and they can't handle it. He can handle it. He's still there. He hasn't taken off. He's crying out, God, I'm seeing this. What do you want to do with me in this? And look what he says next. And set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. So he's standing on his watch. He's doing his job on this tower. He's elevated. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he's, but in the midst of that, he's waiting to see what God's going to say. He wants to know what God's got to say. He's cried out to God this whole chapter. I don't understand this. This stuff's going on. Judgment's been flipped upside down. What was right is wrong. And what now is, what is, what is wrong is now right. The judgment of the world is overcoming us. That We're getting ready to get wiped out here. I'm going to stand and do what you've called me to do. I'm not going anywhere, but how do you want me to handle it? What do you want me to do with it? I don't know what to do with it. It's kind of overwhelming, right? So he says, he set me upon the tower. Watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. He's interested in what God's got to say, but not only is he interested in what God's got to say, but he's considering his response because he knows God's going to respond. But a response from God is going to require a response from you. So he knows that. So I'll tell you one thing about Habakkuk. He was serious about crying out to God enough that he knew he was going to have to respond to it. That tells me something about his relationship with God. He's not just crying out and whining, right? He's crying out saying, God, what do you want me to do with this? I need to know what you want me to do in this environment, in this circumstance. I'll do it. But he knows he's going to have to get an answer. He's thinking about that already. When he took it to God, he thought about God's response, not knowing what it would be. But he's also thinking at the same time, how am I going to answer? How am I going to, how am I going to respond? Because when God comes to you and you're talking to God and God begins to respond, he's going to require a response. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen, right? You hear guys all the time complaining and whining and worried, right? You do. You see that a lot in life, just in general. But if you give them a solution and they choose not to do it, whose problem is that? It's theirs. It's theirs. You cry out to God. God tells you this, but you do this. Well, that's not, that's you, right? That's you. That's me. He's considering his response already, not knowing what God's going to say. Verse 1 again, watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer 
when I am approved. Not only that, he knows he's going to get corrected, reproved, instructed, right? That's what that word means. He even knows to some degree that his crying out to God in question of God is a problem, right? Because we should have that faith and that confidence that God is in control. We should have that faith, and we're going to see that in a minute, that, that allows us to go through things uh, with God at our side, right? But, but he's saying, I'm gonna, he knows he's going to get reproved on this. <clears throat> have you ever had a yelling match with God? I have, right? I've had a few of those. And it generally ends up with not a lot said, right? And have you ever done that as a parent? Have a kid come up and yell at you? Now, I have. not Well, not necessarily in my family, but when I was young, I, I, I tried that a couple times. And it's interesting because dads, you know, they, they might have been silent on that out of wisdom, or they might have done something else, right? <laughs> so you, you never really knew when, when you came, maybe it was silence. Maybe it was correction. Maybe it was something else. But, but he knows he's going to get reproved. He's come to God. He's crying out. He's questioning God, right? So he knows his questions have an answer, and his understanding is what is lacking. He understands that. He knows that. And so he knows he's going to It's almost like somebody crying out for attention right? Where he's just seeing all this. I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with this. I need some attention right now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of go off and see if that gets, gets me some attention from the Lord. But, but he's crying out in sincerity and he's looking at how he's going to answer when he gets reproved. And then in verse two, God responds and he says this, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. So several things about that verse. First thing he says is you need to write down what I'm going to tell you. All right. You've come to me with a burden. Write this down. Now I've gotten horrible about remembering things. I do this at work all the time and I'll forget a notebook. All right. I come home with ink on my hand multiple times a week, that kind of stuff. I'm really, I'm really getting, you know, if, it's funny. I, it's like I need some between the the partner that I have. That w between the two of us, generally we've got everything with us we need. That's kind of how it works. We're both getting old. That's just the reality is, uh, and that's just part of the package, man. I forget things, right? And so you end up. But he says, write this down, write it down. So here's 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 the advice, right? First of all, write the vision. God's got something that He's responding to you in write it down. I've got notebooks of stuff, several big ones in certain, coming here would be one of those. Going to Denver would be another one that I've got, still got papers that I can pull out and say, God, this is what you showed me. And there's, there's several reasons for that. One, because we forget things, right? We forget things. God does things in our lives. God moves us, and, and we face different challenges, and things aren't what we thought they were going to be. And we start getting distracted by the different challenges that exist, and we forget why God brought us sometimes where we are, and our vision begins to wane, right? We forget it. Well, if he told it to me, 
if he's if he's trying to use me in some area, then and I can go back and show you. Like I've I've said this a lot of times in class. I go back to certain passages like Deuteronomy chapter six, and I can tell you where I was in life and what that passage led me to do with children's ministry when I was my wife and I were a lot younger. I, I remember those verses. There's a lot of passages like that that you can go to, and as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, you will get those passages that God gives you that mean the same thing to all of us, doctrinally and, and inspirationally, but they, there's a certain personal application in the circumstance that you're going through at the time. And this is why it's so important to be in the Word of God. Tony's talking about access. We know we've got a perfect book. We know that. I mean, we've, we've taught that. Tony's taught that. But are you accessing it? If you're not accessing it, it does you no good. It does you no good. Right? Forgot a taser one night and ended up in a fight in a ditch with a guy. And nobody, he'd switch, this is, switch my radio channel. So I couldn't call out. This is how smart this guy was. Couldn't call out. Didn't understand why other cops weren't responding. Forgot my taser. Wouldn't have ended up there if I'd have had what God gave me to use, right? Fortunately, I'm still alive. But at the same time, God gave you a book, and yet we sit it, and I, listen, I, I'm guilty of this sometimes, where I sit it down, I don't do what I need to do with it, I don't arm myself, I don't equip myself, whatever, I get stuff hung up, and I got going 50 different directions, and that's not the first one that's there sometimes. We got to be careful with that. Write it down. He, I think it's interesting, he, he wrote it down, right? He wrote this vision down, and here we are reading it right? Because he had a purpose in our life for it. And so, write the vision down. Proverbs 29 verse 18 says what? Where there is no vision, the people perish. If you lose vision, you're going to die spiritually. You lose sight of what God has called you to do and what he wants you to be. You lose sight of the vision that he has written down for you in that book. You're going to die spiritually. You may be walking around, right? You may be filling a church seat. I've, I've been there. We've done that. But my relationship with God is not what it needs to be because that written instrument that he gave me by which I should run is on the desk at home, right? It's not in my mind and it's not in my heart or it's, it's being overwhelmed or, or cut out by something else. So go on down to verse Verse 2, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, first of all. And then 2, make it plain, right? Make it plain. Look at it. Don't just write it down. Write it plainly and clearly that it's not confusing to you. Make it plain. Because somebody's, in this case, somebody else is going to read it at another time they need it, right? They're going to read it when they need it. Because that's what's going on. You're looking in the future. You're dealing with the tribulation period where the Jews are out of Jerusalem, overrun, they're on the run. And they're going to need this book because this book right here, keep going down in that where it says, make it plain upon tables that he may run, he may run that readeth it. Notice it's not talking to him. He's writing this for somebody else. Now he can apply it in his own life, but he's writing it to for he that may he that he that will read it and run so he's he's dealing with 
writing this for somebody other than himself, not just his own person. He sees the vision. He's getting the direct communication with God, but he's taking that. He's writing it plainly that he that readeth it, that he may run, right? Write it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Somebody else is going to read this book someday, right? And they're going to run, be able to run uh, because they read it. They're going to be able to accomplish that purpose in God. Now, it's interesting, I think, from a, the sense of the nation of Israel at that time is going to be running out of Jerusalem, and they're going to be running up into the hills to seek cover from the Antichrist. They're going to be literally running, right? There's a little literal running going on there. Uh, they're going to see this coming. They're going to see it. That chapter 1 nails it down. This is what's going to happen. I'm bringing up the Chaldeans. They're going to overrun you. Write this so they see it and they run. So, I mean, there's, there's a very literal translation, not translation, but, but doctrinal application of this book. So he goes on, let's write the vision, right? So write it down, make it plain. If God calls you to do something, he wants you to do something, write it down, right? Put it down so you don't forget it. Like I said, write those things down. There's several passages, and the, the Bible uses the term stones of remembrance. When God does things in your life and you record those things so you don't forget them, that's kind of what happens in chapter 3 of this book. But, but write the things down that God tells you. Keep a log. I'm not real great at it. I don't do that every day, but I, I tend to try. I've been trying to journal more lately where I'm reading something and just writing something down because I can go back and I can look now at what I got on January 1st at 1 o'clock in the morning, you know, uh, of 2023, because God shared something with me then. So I can go back and I can look at that, and it reminds me, hey, this is your year, because your year has all these other distractions going on with it, right? I've got all these things going on. I'm, I'm traveling a lot in May. I've got other ministry things. I've got, and it's all of a sudden, I've forgotten that. But I can go back to, to that page on January 1st, and I can say, oh, hey, man, this is, I remember this. This is exactly what God told me to do this year. This is what I need to do. It wasn't necessarily specific, but it was focus-oriented, right? I know I need to, my focus needs to be on a few things and those things I need to, don't get distracted by the other stuff. Write it down so you don't forget it. Make it plain so that you can understand it upon tables that he may run that readeth it. God desires us to run. We have a race we're running. And it's that book that guides us and directs us, right? We are to run that race. We'll jump over. Just jump over to, uh, what, 1 Corinthians chapter 9? So we'll jump around a little bit, but not a lot. Because Habakkuk is really pretty, pretty straightforward book, I have found. First Corinthians chapter 9, some of you guys in the uh, H2O group, this is a passage you should familiarize yourself with if you haven't already, right? Those that are out there running. Um, verse 23, or verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. 
I, therefore, so run, not as uncertainty, uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. We were, God desires us to run a race, right? And to bring our bodies in subjection to the mission of God. Now, there's definitely some physical aspects to that, but he's not talking about running five miles. That's not what he's talking about. There's a place for that because we have a body and God desires us to manage it, but he's talking about preaching, right? Lest I preach to others. He's talking about running and accomplishing the mission that God gave him. God has a mission that he desires you to run. One thing I found about running, especially on longer runs, running is is kind of a lonely sport, especially if you're doing, you know, not like team running. I'm talking about just going out and running half marathon or something. It's you're out there. There's people out there, but you'll notice on those runs that you might plug into somebody for a while and kind of run along and try to encourage one another. Generally speaking, it's an individual sport. It's something you are going out there, you're running, you're accomplishing whatever you can accomplish in the body that you have to get to that distance in a certain time. Now, that's other people can help you with that, but it's still your race. That's one thing I like about it, really. It's like that race is mine. If I finish that race in two hours or I finish that race in two hours and 15 minutes, that's on me, right? I run my race. I mean, I, and I haven't, hey, I'm, I haven't run in four months, so just FYI. <laughs> but whatever, when you're out running, it's you. It's kind of a lonely, you're running your race, right? I don't have to compete with Tony spiritually. This isn't a competition. This is God put me in a race. He desires me to run it. My job is to train and prepare and to accomplish the race that God has me running. And that's going to entail different courses, different strategies to some degree, different people that you're involved with, different, different. We were talking last night, um, had some folks over and Mason made the comment. I thought it was really good that there are people that Mason can reach that I cannot reach. There are people that I can reach that he cannot reach. There are people that Tony can reach. There are people that you can reach that I cannot reach. That's the way it is. God has got you in a race at a certain time to accomplish a certain purpose with a certain people. And those are the people that God puts you with. Run the race, you know, run the race. And that's what he says back in, back at chapter two, right? He says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables. So once you've got the vision written and you understand it, now the decision comes into play. Are you going to run it? Are you going to run it? Or are you not? I haven't run a race in, I ran a long, miserable race in, when was that? September? Then I ran one more after that. And I was so burned out after that last trail run, I seriously, I never want to run again. You ever been there? I'm like, I'm done. This is stupid. I mean, I seriously. I mean, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. And and I look back and I'm glad I did because, you know, I got the t-shirt and sticker and all that junk. But at the end of the day, man, it was rough. And so the decision now, though, is still, do I want to go run? I mean, we all have that spiritually. Don't quit running, you know. 
I can do that physically for a while and do things other, you know, I can take care of things physically in different ways, but, but God called you to run a race. The decision to do it and to keep doing it. I watch these guys run these hundred mile deals. I tell you, for a while, I get I, my brain. This is how my brain works, right? I see something like that, and I think I want to do that. That's where I was two years ago. Two years ago, so I got to 25k and said, "I'm done." 16 miles far enough for this fool. If I go more than five again in my life, I probably won't ever do that. So I mean, it's like you, but but that's how my brain works, right? I see this stuff. Oh, I I could do that. You know what it takes to do that? Hey, more power. I like watching them, you know. But God called you to run a 100-miler. Get going. Get going spiritually. God called you to run a 5K. Go do it. Just run it till it's done, right? You run it to obtain a prize. You run it the right way. And you run it because you know that's what God wants you to do. Because you wrote it down, you wrote it plainly, you've read it. Now go run it. Don't try to I don't try to go be a hundred mile runner, two hundred mile runner, if that's not what God wants you to do. Because you just burn yourself out and you're quit. Do what God called you to do, and think. We 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 got to be careful with that. God called you to run your own race. You know, within the structure of the church, obviously, there's, there's, but what you do, it's why every member of the body is important, man. That's why he talks about that. Every member of the body is important. If you're a 100-mile runner or a 400-sprinter, hey, there's a place. God's got you here for that reason, to run the race that God gave you within that structure. Don't try to keep up with, we shouldn't even really look at it that way, but we do with our competitive minds. So be careful. So he says, write it down, make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Verse three, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak. So now we get into the doctrinal aspect of when he's writing this for. It's for an appointed time in the end. So this is for somebody in the end. This book is written again, for the Jews in the tribulation period under the reigning of the Antichrist. That's the time that it's written for, right? It's written for an appointed time in the end before God comes back and, like he does in chapter 2, deals with the Antichrist and, and allows uh, the nation to praise God again. So it's an appointed time. It's in the end. So you would say this is for the end times, right? And we're not in the same end times in the sense of of the nation of Israel in the tribulation, but we are coming to an end. Our time here is appointed. God knows, you know, God knows what we're doing and what he's doing. He knows when this thing's over. He knows when the rapture of the church is going to be, and it is doing exactly in our times what it says it would do before that, which really we talked about in verses 1 through 5 of the first chapter, right? So the end times are approaching. They are here. It's written appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. So his, God's advice, right? Write it plainly, read it, run, wait for it. It doesn't say, ah, I'm just going to take care of your problems right now. 
He said, I will. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, keep your watch. Run your race. Wait for it. The world is not getting better. Okay? The world is not getting better. It's not for even for your time. Notice that. It's not even for his time. It's not, he's not, he knows at this point, it's not even, he's not even going to do the rest of chapter 2 while he's still alive. Habakkuk knows it's not changing. It's for the end time. It's not even for his time. He's saying, I'll take care of it. This is going to be way beyond you, brother. Right? This is going to be way beyond you. I'm going to fix this. You're going to have to deal with it now. This is what you do now. You write this down. You know what's coming. You do what you're supposed to do and accomplish what I want you to accomplish, right? Verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry. Wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Don't give up on the coming of the Lord in our life, right? Christ's coming back. It's, you know, our life is, is small. The older I get, the more I realize that, right? It is very short, very small. But we have much bigger things to look forward to once we're with him. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. So you have two people here. One whose soul, right, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. That's the first person you're dealing with. The one that's lifted up. And the second one is, but... The just shall live by his faith. So you have two, two people he's referencing here. One is clearly the Antichrist, right? He's going to talk to him in the whole chapter. He's going to deal with him after verse 4. Two people. You've got the Babylonian system whose soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, is not right. And then you have the just shall live by his faith, his faith, his faith, right? Whose faith? Well, let's go take a look. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse. I'm going to jump around a little bit on this one. Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Let's look at verse 15. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, just shall live by we live by faith. We preach the truth of the word of God. We accomplish God's purpose regardless of the circumstances. We live by faith. And God is glorified. Jump over to Galatians 3. Verse 11, but that no man is justified by the law 
in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Right? The just shall live by faith. In the context of those that are justified in the sight of God, by faith. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's a good discipleship verse, right? It's by grace you saved through faith. Saved through faith. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We're still in the book of Galatians. He says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He doesn't say I live by my faith in the Son of God. It's his faith. It's his faith. So you have two men pictured in Habakkuk. You have the Antichrist, this living soul is lifted up. And then you have the one that shall live by his faith. Those that live by the faith of the Son of God, just like it talks about in Galatians. Quoting this passage, quotes it four times, I think, in the New Testament. This is important. So he goes through the woes, jump down to verse 3. God gives him his answer, and now he's got to respond. And so in closing, I want to show you how he responded real quick. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, you could say there was the cry of Habakkuk's burden, right? By the time you get here, you get the prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years. Make known in wrath, remember mercy. He says, okay. I'm afraid of this. He's still scared. You'll notice that. But he says, revive your work. Accomplish your purpose and remember your mercy. So two things. Revive your work. That's the focal point. You got this stuff. You got your faith. You got your right down the vision. You understand what God's calling you to do, what he wants you to be. Now you cry out to God. God, revive your work. Accomplish your work. Do your work in these times and remember your mercy. When all this judgment is going on and all this stuff, and they're getting ready to get overrun and, and captured and, and you know assimilated into this Babylonian empire, he says, just remember your mercy. Mercy still exists, even in the midst of, of the mess. It's still there. Revive your work, God. Accomplish your purpose. Remember your mercy. And then he goes through verses 3 through 16, and he remembers all the things that God had done, a lot of things that God had done victoriously in the past. He remembered it and what God was, who God is, Right, and he goes on, um, and, and you can you can see it in verse uh, 
3, God came from Kenan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covereth the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his, and his brightness was as the light. He had uh, horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. So he goes through this, and he, he starts now to reflect on the things in, in, in the history of the nation that God had done for them. He remembered. He asked God to remember his mercy, but he goes back, and he remembers the mercy. Don't forget what God's done in your life already in these times. God brought you to a place and desires to use you. Don't lose that in the midst of the world that we live in. And he goes through these things, and he goes down to verse 17, and, and then he says, he comes to this conclusion. This is his conclusion. This is his answer. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel, right? We know that in, in the book of Matthew. It represents the physical side of the nation of Israel. He says, the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, right? John chapter 15, there's a vine attached to a fig tree, and that vine is going to be cut off and burned because it's not accomplishing the purpose of God in the nation of Israel. It's going to be set aside for a time. The labor of the olive shall fail. The olive is the spiritual side of the nation of Israel. That's your, your religious system of the nation of Israel. It's going to fail. We see the olive branches during the time of the tribulation and the two prophets in the book of Revelation that come and preach as olive trees to the nation of Israel. The, the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. There is the state, the conclusion of the nation of Israel in his time, and really what it is right now. Still there. It's not bearing fruit. It's not being what it should be, not doing what it should do. Verse 18, here's his conclusion. All right, God, you've shown me this. It ain't changing. Yet I will rejoice. Here's his answer. In the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. He says, man, this whole place falls apart. I'm just going to rejoice in God because I'm saved. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. No matter how bad it gets, that cannot be taken from you. That cannot be suppressed. Nobody can pull God away from you, regardless of the circumstances. His choice. Here's his decision. Yet will I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He focuses his strength on what he knows. God is my strength. I can't get through this. I don't know what I'm going to do. End up at some dungeon like Daniel, right? That's where they're going. God, you're my strength. And he will make my feet like hind's feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments. He wrote a song. He praised God. He rejoiced in his salvation. He found joy in the God of his salvation. Rejoiced in the Lord, found joy in the God of his salvation. He trusted God to be his strength during those times, and he knew 
that God would lift him up above his own high places. That God would overcome that for him. Notice he says, mine high places. Not the high places of the nations. His. Regardless of those circumstances. Right? So listen. Cry out for God. What he wants you to do in life. Wait for that answer. Looking for it. Be ready to respond to it. And when he gives it to you, write it down. Make it plain that you can read it, that you can run by faith the race that God's given you. Rejoice in the Lord. Find joy in your salvation. Right? And praise God that he will strengthen you and lift you above the mess within which we live to accomplish his purpose. That's the message of Habakkuk, man. Let's submit to it today. Father, Lord, I love you. I thank you so much, Father, for this message. And it's so easy, I know for me sometimes, just to look at, at the, uh, the chaos in the world and want to just go and hide, you know, really, Father. And, um, you know, my heart there and in my mind sometimes and just want to disappear and, and not want to see it or deal with it. But, Lord, that's not why you put us here. You've given us a message to preach. You've given us a purpose. You've given us a watch to watch, Lord, uh, in... in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Lord, it talks about that watching for your coming and accomplishing your purpose while we watch and while we wait. You've written this book down that we might read it and run the race that, God, you've given us. We know the end game. We know, Father, what we're going through. We know what the world's going through. We know what the people in the world are going through because you said it would happen. And we know the outcome. And we know that you're coming soon. Until that day, may we continue to run our race rejoicing in you, having the joy of our salvation, trusting, Lord, in your strength, trusting, Father, in your ability to raise us above the things of this world and conquer the issues in our life. And, Lord, may we continue just to praise you, Father, for all you've done and all you're going to do. Thank you, Lord, for those that are here today. I pray, Lord, that we would just take the message and, and leave encouraged. Father, to fight the fight, Lord, to run the race, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9, and to accomplish your purpose in this place. We give you praise and glory in all things. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. It is 103. I'm hungry. <laughs>